today on the Tim Manor podcast show at 11.11. Brilliant. <laughs> Rob Hoskins, ex-police officer turned motivational speaker and you're the co-founder of Rise of Happiness. That's it, that's the one. How did this come about, mate? Ex-police officer. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit of a story. Ex-police to motivational speaker and yeah. talking about happiness. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a long journey. TEDx as well you've been on. TEDx, yeah, TEDx too. Amazing, so mate. It's been, it's been a long, hard, but worthwhile journey. So Tell, tell me about the police then. How did you get into being a police officer? You know what? People are always like, oh, you know, you follow your dreams and everything, like being a police officer. And I was like, no. Nah. Like, I was studying history, fourth year at university. History? Never, history, history to the police. <laughs> it's not really, doesn't really go. I was like, I never wanted to join the police. And then my brother said, oh, look, they're, they're recruiting. And he was going to uh, join. And my family, we were police or military. So I had that idea of, you know, other people's idea of what success and what happiness was were either police or military. And I was like, right, if someone's going to join the police and it's open, I'm in the fourth year of uni. Don't know what I want to do after. Didn't want to become a history teacher. I was like, what should I do? I was like, oh, screw it. I'll just apply. Just what's the worst thing can happen? Three months later, I'm, I've joined. I left university halfway through fourth year, and there I was starting my sh- first shift in February, second February. Why history in the first place? Just something you're interested in again? Just, or just I, fall I just into it? it. I just loved history, yeah. and I wanted. So I'm from Belfast originally, and I just wanted to experience university, get some life experience about me. And I thought going to university was a great way just to kind of break free of some shackles of back home and just experienced life in a different country and I just loved history I was like I didn't ever thought well, how old were you when you moved over to do 19 that? so yeah. I was 19 and I just you know wanted to experience something different had enough of Northern Ireland like I loved Northern Ireland but just had enough of it yeah. and just wanted a new experience history I said it was just my passion I just loved doing it so I thought I'll just put them to, those two together and when did you join the police in which, which county um, it was in Tayside, so right. up in Dundee area, I joined the police force, and yeah. it was a challenge, to, to say the least. And, you know, that person that I was, I always talk about this, that I was a different person when I joined the police. Then who, who was you when you joined the police? I was someone, like, fun, <laughs> first right. of all, fun, happy. I was so positive. I was, you know, I would always have a laugh and there was just you just see the energy about me that you're like this guy is full of life and just loves loves life so to yeah, speak yeah. then all of a sudden within six months of being in the police that fun loving person completely changed all of a sudden i was becoming this negative person what was it rob that did that the, the environment the, the environment the environment like i i talked about this where i think the culture of the police your colleagues They've been in there for 30 years, some of them 20 years, 10 years. They've seen awful things yeah. and that changes them as people. And they're just bitter. They're bitter about life. They're pessimistic about life. Mm. They think everything's crap and whatever it is, they, they don't like change. And then all of a sudden that kind of gets put on you. And then when you think, you just witness the worst in people day in, day out. So not only were your colleagues pessimistic, but then when you're seeing the worst in people, you're seeing the murders, you're seeing the physical assaults, you're seeing the sexual assaults, domestic abuse, whatever it may be, you're seeing the worst in people day in and day out. That has an impact on how you view the world. So how I viewed the world at 22 years old, although I knew these things happened, I wasn't subjected to it. 
I'm not in the police. I was getting verbally abused, left, right, and center, physically abused sometimes. People, you know, they, they heard the accent, especially, and they were like, right, happy days. Let's abuse him with his accent. And that's that was not just my colleagues, that was uh, people too. Like, everybody was going at, at me for my accent and how I was different. People, the amount of times people were like, get back to your own country, abusing really? me. Oh, yeah, you're Irish, so-and-so, so-and-so, whatever it may be. And I was just like, bloody hell. From your colleagues as well? My colleagues even said, get back to your own country. But it was, you know, that kind of banter when the room, you've got, especially yeah. the, the lad banter. Have your lad banter and you, you poke fun at people and stuff. And, you know, I'd have a wee bit of banter, say something to somebody. And it was all just banter. And they always would laugh. But some people didn't like being the butt of the joke in a group. And then all of a sudden, they saw me as the weak one. And right, okay. the, the, you know, the inexperienced one. And they yeah. were like, I'm going to make you the butt of the joke. Right. And they were like, oh, what do you know anyway? Get back to your own country. You're, you're over here taking our jobs. And I'm like, ah, funny, you didn't like, you know, you were fine with the banter, but as soon as I put the banter on you, just as a joke, yeah. you didn't like it, and then you just got nasty. It turns toxic. Exactly, and yeah. it, that culture existed, unfortunately, and I just think, you know, when you're with people, especially in the police, where your colleagues are there to save your life, but the next minute they're happy to make you the butt of the joke around your friends or your other colleagues, you just think, really? Like, is, that what, is that what we are? I thought we had, like, a connection here. But no, I'm just I'm just another number to you. I'm just another person. You don't give a crap about me. You just want to make sure that you're you're seen as the the big guy in the in the police station or whatever it may be. And I just thought that culture's not me. How long you were in it for? Five years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I wanted to leave after the first year. I wanted to leave after the second year, the third year. I wanted to leave, but I just felt trapped. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you leave something like that? Exactly, that's the thing. I'm paying into a pension. I've got a good job. Society and people around me would be saying to me, oh, that's a good job. Oh, that's brilliant. You're in the police? Oh, jeez, that's brilliant. What are you going to do after? Are you going to get promoted? And everything yeah. like that. So you can imagine, subconsciously, I'm thinking, oh, I'm doing the right thing. So I just thought, what else could I do? What else could I do? And when I spoke to people, like my dad, I was like, to my dad, I'm, like, I'm not happy, I, I want to leave. And he's like, well, what else is out there for you? What are you going to do? Because I left, you know, I left university, I didn't get a qualification where I was like, right, I'm going to do this. And I had this drummed into me that I couldn't be anything else, but I could. And it just took me a while to realize how, do, how do you make yourself realize that you are, Rob? To be honest with you, for me, it was an experience in the police that happened. There was two experiences in the police that were very awakening for me. Like so, the first one was all the, my my mental health deteriorated to the point where I just I was fed up of life. I looking back, I realized it wasn't that I was fed up of life. I was just fed up of living my life the way it looked. But as you can imagine, see when you feel stuck in a life you hate, mm. stuck in a job and in a career that is actually affecting your mental health so much. It really gets to you mentally. And I was just felt, I was, you know, all my days off, I was sleeping all the time. And I was just thinking to myself, what is my life? I'm living an unhappy life. And I can't so do anything about it. when you say fed up, Robert, do you attach depression to being yeah. fed up? Yeah, I was, I was depressed. But I, was, I would describe myself as a functioning depressive. Because on my days off, I'd stay in bed. But then as soon as, you know, I needed to go to work, up, get changed, get showered, whatever, went to work, and the big smile would come on my face, and nobody would know that, oh, Rob's suffering. And I just mm -hmm. put on a mask. So I was still doing life, 
but I was so unhappy inside. I was depressed. And I just thought, how, how can I stop this? How can I stop this rut that I was in? And I thought, the only way I can stop it is by ending my life. And that's when I thought, that's, that, that, that is the decision. I have to end my life. You know, so I'm talking people down from bridges, helping them to make sure that they don't take their own life. And I'm looking up at them and I'm thinking, I wish I was up there. I wish I was that person because I was just so unhappy. And the day that I decided this is it, I couldn't, I couldn't have, I didn't have any more hope left. And I thought, this is the day what I made my plans. I was going to hang myself. I'm going to hang myself in the garage. I wasn't even going to leave a note, so someone would just have to find me. But I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking that there's the only way I. Why no wrote um... note? I just didn't feel like anyone deserved an explanation. I didn't feel like anyone deserved anything from me after that. I didn't want to. Not even your family, Rob. I know. I, I you know, looking back, you know, I think, oh, you know, my family deserved more. But I never opened up to them about my mental health. I never wanted them to just nobody knew nobody knew nobody knew apart from me so you can imagine Fucking how right. much yeah. strain that put on me i was having excessive stress at work you know i was cutting down people who'd hung themselves and i was just thinking to myself all oh, this negativity was building and i was thinking to myself what am i doing with my life but i couldn't open up i could not open up to my colleagues i didn't feel safe to open up to my colleagues because we'd go to so many mental health calls and then my colleagues were like, oh, that was a lot of crap, wasn't it? And you think, oh, is this how you feel mental health? <laughs> so you can imagine, I'm thinking, I can't tell you There's how I feel. nobody you could turn to. Nobody I can turn to. And I've always been a private person anyway. So you think a private person, and then these examples that I was getting shown, how could I, how could I feel safe? It was frightening that, Rob. Yeah. That's and, frightening, mate. And that's the thing, I was, I was helping people. I was protecting the public. I was the one in danger. I wasn't protecting myself. I didn't give a crap about who I was as a person or you know my future, whatever it may be. I just didn't care because I was like, I, I can see a way out now because I I'd planned it for a while. But I was like, I'm just want to end it, and it just took me a while to actually think I've I've made my plans. So you got the the day you're there on the day. The days on yeah on the day I'm on the day and I get out of my bed and I'm like this is it. I'm going to take my own life. And I get emotional even thinking about it now. And I looked down at my dog and he looked back up at me <laughs> and he gave me a big lick. And it was that that saved my life because I looked at him as we face looking up at me. And it was that expecting face of, you know, give me some attention, you know, like give me some love. And for that- Somebody wanted you. Yeah, somebody wanted me. You. That's it, that is it, exactly. Someone showed me love and attention right there in that moment who actually depended on me. And I just thought, I can't, I can't leave you. I cannot leave you. I didn't, you know, and this sounds horrible to say, but I didn't care about my family. Yeah. I didn't care about my mum, my dad, my brother. I didn't care. But that dog who had been there for me, you know, when I was struggling, when I was depressed on the sofa, couldn't get up when I'm in bed, he was giving me the cuddles in bed. It was him who I thought, I can't leave you. Nobody else. And he saved my life because I just thought, I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't do that to him. Now, although I didn't take my life that day, I didn't magically just get better. 
I would just that's when I would probably describe myself as a functioning press. I just kept going. I never told anybody. I only told people about these ideas, my family last year, and that was in 2018 when I wanted to take my own life. So it was a lot of years after when I actually opened up to my family and said, this is how I felt at one point in my life. And it must've been very difficult for them. A family knowing that someone's struggling, someone they love struggling so much and they didn't have a clue. It's scary. It's scary to find that out. But it took me a while to be brave enough to share that with people because I had been seen in the public eye, especially as you know, the police officer, the person who protects people. Sunshine, yeah, exactly. And my friends, they're always like, you know, he's good positivity, always happy. To then say to people, by the way, that was all a lie. I was that person, yes, 22 years old, 21, 20, whatever. But at that point in my life, I wasn't. But I was still displaying those positive emotions, those positive behaviours. So after the, the, the dog incident, yeah. um, how long did it take you then to start working on yourself? Was there something else that happened, another moment? There was another moment, yeah. So, you know, that should have been an awakening call for me, but it wasn't. I just get, you know, you get stuck back in a rut because, yeah. see, when you surround yourself with people who are also in that rut, yeah. when you surround yourself in that environment in the police, it's so easy just to get back into it. So I got back stuck in the rut, still unhappy, but it was my last ever shift that changed my life. Now, I didn't know it was going to be my last ever shift. Now, looking back, it was my last ever shift. On my last ever shift, in the morning, I witnessed a young male take his own life. And I was there, I was first on scene because I witnessed it happen. And I was first on scene and I looked at him and I couldn't get to him the way he'd crashed his car. So he purposely crashed his car into the back of the lorry. So we just saw him all of a sudden speed up turn in and that was a common thing at that time like on the carriageway that we where we worked but we watched it and then I was there so we turned the police van around the window so I looked down and the window you know uh, screen was all smashed and you could just see his face and the blood was just spurting out of his mouth and he was in like all, all these bushes and it was like a wee drop I was like I, I can't I can't I physically can't get down to help him and then you just saw, you know, the blood spurting and then just the noise of him just taking his last breath. And his eyes were wide open, staring at me. And I'm sitting there going, I can't, I can't help you. And that is so horrific to witness that. Like, just for me, I was like, how can, why the hell can you be here one minute and you're next, the next minute you're gone. And it reminded me of me because I was, no, I didn't, I wasn't going to crash my car, but I was that young male who wanted to take my own life. So it was it was a big, you know, it, it hit me differently, I think, maybe than other people. Yeah. Not taking away from other people, but I think it did because it reminded me of the place that I was in that wanted to take my own life. And if that wasn't bad enough, five hours later, my colleague had a heart attack on shift and died. And I was there, the paramedics giving him CPR and I'm just watching and he's, he's lost consciousness, he's completely gray giving him CPR and taking him into the ambulance and you know all my colleagues some of the rest of my colleagues were all just waiting the paramedics come out and they said no he's he's not made it and yet again you know when I was watching them give him CPR I felt so helpless yet again on a second time that day because I was like well he's in the best care possible the paramedics are giving him CPR but I, I cannot physically do anything else 
And that helplessness really gets to you because you think, I can't do anything to save you. And what made it worse was my colleague had 29 year service, one year left until he was going to retire. And he'd speak to me about, oh, when I retire, I'm going to go traveling with my wife, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, all these plans. I was like, you were putting happiness into the future. You're putting happiness into oh, when I retire. And that, yet again, hit me hard because I thought to myself, is that what I'm doing? Earlier on, I saw my the past. I was like Scrooge in a Christmas Carol. I was seeing the past yeah. and I was seeing a future. Was this going to be me in the future if I continued on? Because I knew the job affected my mental health. The job affected my mental health and it changed me. How long could I have allowed it to go on for before I could have had a heart attack? Because what's it doing in your inside? That excess stress you are under day in, day out, that negativity, the mental deterioration that you experience, you know, what was I going to do? Was I going to have a heart attack in 10 years time, 20 years time, whatever it may be? Because it has to be doing things in your inside. And it was an awakening because I thought to myself, I need to focus on my happiness now. Hearing somebody telling you that they've got the plans for the future, the excitement of what they were going to do as wife. Um, retirement, you think, why am I waiting to retire? I'm 27 years old. Why am I waiting? Or why am I waiting for one week's annual leave, two weeks' annual leave for a holiday abroad somewhere? I'm like, this is brilliant. Why was I waiting for those things? I needed to be happy in every day. Now, of course, I'm going to be unhappy some days. That's how life works. But I need to put my happiness first, do things for myself. And my job was something that affected me the most. So I needed to change it. And it actually, you know, I don't know if that was going to be an awakening as much as I would like to think. But my mind made it an awakening because my mental health deteriorated again at that point, as you can imagine, I was experiencing that. And it deteriorated to the point where it actually manifested itself in a physical injury in my knee. I tore my ACL on that day. And for the next five months, I struggled to walk. Now, I didn't tear my ACL because I yeah. fell over or whatever. My mind thought, right, we need to make him stop. We need to take him out of the game completely. What can we do? And you know, we all have different weak points in our body. And obviously my knee, I had a previous injury in my knee, but they were like, right, that's the weak point. And it tore my ACL. So for the next five months, I had to take time off work. And that's when I realized all these things about what I wanted to be, who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do in my life. And none of it correlated with being in the police anymore. None of it did. What help are you getting there, Rob? In that time you've, you've torn your ACL, are you just sitting with yourself and talking to yourself? Yeah. Are you on YouTube? Are you searching for stuff? What what, what are you doing, sir? To be honest with you, I was, I was watching things that I loved. So I was kind of focusing on just like, what do I love? But I wasn't getting any help in terms of what do I need to do to yeah. get through this? And I remember I went to my inspector and I said to him, I'm struggling mentally. And he said, he was on his, he was on his laptop. And he looked at me and he says, you'll need to get that sorted. I went back to his laptop. And I was like, five years of protecting everybody else, five years of putting my life on the line, literally putting my life on the line, going into calls where people had knives, people had guns, yeah. giving myself to that job. And that's how they repaid me in that last moment. Yeah. I was like, thanks. Like, thank you so much. And he's tough, don't he? Could be like, you know, he could be suffering himself with mental health. Yeah. You've said it and he doesn't want to. 
Exactly. And but around and around we go. Exactly. And nobody's talking. And that's the problem. Nobody's. We don't have that open communication yeah. in the police force that we needed. Because if we had that open communication, I would bet even if he hadn't have spoke about his mental health, by someone opening up, it probably would have got him opening up. Yeah. Or if he was already opened up, he would have responded to that completely differently. Like, right, we need to get your help, but first, let's talk, you and I. Let's talk about it. Let's t- let's get to the crux of what's happening. Yeah. But instead, it was just like, well, you'll need to get that sorted. And you think, really? You know, you, you are a person too. Yeah. How many times do you actually get more help from a friend or family member or whoever it may be yeah. rather than a therapist? You yeah. don't need necessarily a therapist to talk through things. Yeah, yeah. It's people who can understand, people who are empathetic. Yeah. And it was when I was off, yeah, I just, I just asked myself really difficult questions. Like, you know, I looked in the mirror and see the person looking back at me, I was like, I do not like who you've become. Yeah, I've been there, mate. And it's really confronting, isn't it? Yeah. Very confronting because, especially when you're by yourself and you're just looking at yourself, you think, It's brutal. Oh, how can I change that? And you feel shame. I felt shame Mm. of who I'd became. Shameful of my actions, shameful of whatever it was within a relationship time. I wasn't a good boyfriend. And you do shame overcomes you yeah. right, it overcame me anyway and that makes it even more difficult because you think wait a minute I need to focus on sort of the shame element before I can even change and it takes a lot I'm not sure how you felt but it just takes a lot of deep reflection and it's that deep reflection where you can then start asking yourself those questions and you have to ask yourself these difficult questions don't yeah, you yeah, yeah, even though it's difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. it's awful yeah. but if you don't What's the alternative? Mm. Accepting who you've become. But by actually asking yourself, who am I? And not liking the person. That's your first step to be like, well, I know I don't want to be this person. So what do I need to do to not be that person? And I knew that I wanted to be back to the person I was. And I, I've since been diagnosed with PTSD. So I can, I can never go back to who I was. Well, age 21. I've experienced too many things. I've had too much trauma in those five years. I'll never go back. But I can be similar to that person. I can bring back that positivity. And that's what I was thinking in these five months. I can bring back that positivity. I can enjoy life again. I can be happy. But first of all, I need to focus on, well, what is happiness for me? And that question was difficult. And I didn't know what the answer was. I didn't know who I wanted to be necessarily. Yeah. I just knew who I didn't want, who I didn't want to be. I didn't know what made me happy, but I knew what, didn't make me happy. The police didn't make me happy. So quit. And after five months, when I was better, I was like, right, I've got a decision. Do I go back to that life? <coughs> or do I quit and start something new? And I was like, well, it's a no brainer. Cause in those five months, I slept better. Now, yes, my knee was in agony, but I slept better. I ate better. I looked after myself in different ways where all of a sudden I was engaging in healthier behaviors rather than the negative unhealthy behaviors that you would do in the police. And, you know, my, my friends, my colleagues, we'd finish a night shift and sometimes, you know, awful night shift. You think that was brutal. I'd go home at 7 a.m. And you think, my God, right, I need to go to bed soon, but I'll maybe have a, a tea or something just to relax me. But for him, booze, yeah, get the drink. I Thankfully, I never self-medicated through drink or drugs but I self-medicated 
through other things where the unfaithfulness in a relationship the sex yeah that kind of stuff that's probably how i and that kind of stuff the sexual stuff is probably how i self-medicated but other people and i've seen it people turn to drink yeah, yeah, yeah. drugs whatever it may be yeah. and yeah you can only go so long by self-medicating on unhealthy behaviors can't you because either for me it was either well if i keep doing that i'll be dead before i'm 30 not because i'll die doing sexual things or whatever it'll just be because all that built up negativity on the shame that will always take over and that will you know that anxiety that paranoia all that that's what will take over and people have drink whatever you know you get into obsession with that and it's a very difficult time to be able to say right stop 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 all this i I was man i managed to i didn't manage to overnight it was you know five that those five months gave me that platform to be like right rope got five months well i didn't know i had five months but you know you've got time i knew that the acl injury in my knee was going to take time to heal so take time to yourself ask yourself shitty questions that you you might not want to know the answer to but ask yourself it and see where we get to because anything you do is better than what you are when you hit rock bottom you think well the only way is up (laughs) the only way the only thing i did whether it's any decision i make Surely it's going to be better than yeah. where I am. I've made shitty decisions. So, and that's what I did. Quit my, in the space of two weeks, I quit my job, ended a relationship, and sold my house. Because all of a sudden I was like, clarity, I'm clear of who I wanted to be. And none of these things lined. Now, ending the relationship, that was a given. Because, well, I can't be unfaithful and think, well, no, that's going to continue. No, that's, I knew, yes. I was unfaithful. I think a lot of the trauma that I was experiencing went into that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I was also unfaithful because I was unhappy in a relationship. So there was, there was all these things. So I was like, I just knew it. All of a sudden, by analysing my life, I just knew the things I had to fix. And what are you thinking of doing once you've done all that? What was your plan? I, I just thought, thankfully, so my parents lived in Belfast and they actually moved over to where I lived not because of what I was going through they didn't know but they moved over it was just eventually my, my brother had a kid that's what it was and they wanted to be closer to the grandchildren and they moved over and I'm so close to my dad he was like best friend to me I'm so close to my mum too but for the first time in 10 years because I didn't live near them for 10 years for the first time in 10 years I actually had a a support group yeah. there yeah whether even if I didn't tell them anything but it was a support group in terms that I felt safe, safe there. Yeah, safety's there. That's it. Yeah. And they moved over at that time. So those, this decision of selling my house in a relationship and creating a job, that was correlated with them coming over. I was, you know, I moved in with them initially. Just, I went back to the, my safe space. And I just felt like this relief. Just like, oh, my goodness. Then COVID hit like three weeks later. But it was, and then COVID, you know, yet again it allowed me a lot of reflection and time to be like well what do I want to do with my life who do I want to be so it kind of kind of prolonged that kind of those kind of questions but it was good because I knew basically I knew what I didn't want so there I think that's where you have to start when was the time that you knew what you wanted to do what what was that I think it was I think I knew to be honest with you in terms of the motivational speaking and stuff yeah. that I do now that took probably about a year maybe even a year and a half after 
I've left the police yeah. because I felt like, see, when I left the police, I thought I've removed the thing that's, I'm called, uh, that's causing me trauma, the PTSD. I'm, I've removed it. And I focused on that last shift. I thought that last shift, that was, that's, that's what, that was the final nail in the coffin, so to speak. But I didn't realize at that time that that coffin had many nails in it before that final nail. That last shift was just the last shift. That was the final straw. And it took a while for me to actually remember these, this trauma. I just thought, I've removed myself from it. I'll heal now. I've healed from that last shift. But a year and a half or a year after, I started experiencing the PTSD symptoms. Like what? I was getting flashbacks at night. I was getting night terrors. So I'd wake up shouting, fuck, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. So I'm allowed to swear, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm like, fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. My partner's like, my, my now partner, she's like, what's, what's wrong? I was like, oh, I don't know, like, what's happening? And she, you know, she, she's scary for her when I'm having these outbursts at night. I'm saying other things at night just randomly. And she's like, what's wrong? I'm like shaking uncontrollably. I was getting the sweats at night. So the night terrors for me was the biggest one. Yeah. And I wasn't, you know, it, it really, I was, you know, I was afraid to go to sleep each night. I was afraid of going to sleep because I was like, I'm not thinking about the police. When I'm, before I'm going to sleep, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm like happy, happy, I'm go to bed. And then all of a sudden, all this happens. opens up. That's it. And that's when I realized, shit, there's so much here that is actually unhealed. I was focusing on that last shift. What about the five years of built up trauma? Cutting down someone who's hanging, telling their wife, by the way, you know, he's just taking his own life, reading the, the notes that he had um, put for his wife and his children. How do you do something like that, Rob? How, how, how do you do, how do you, in the, in the moment, how do you deal with something like that? Professionalism takes over. You just like, okay, deep, compact. Yeah. And that, it's dangerous to do that though, but yeah. you need to do it at that point because you're saying, I can't break down in tears. But then you've got to feel it afterwards. But you need to feel it. And not enough people feel it. You know, we have the dark humor in the place. We're like, oh, we'll say the jokes. And that's fine initially because you need to keep going on your shift. Yeah. Because if that, you can't feel it, you can't heal it, can you? That's it, exactly. And with, you know, all my colleagues that I've worked with, we all enjoyed the dark humor. Yeah. How many of us was doing the healing work? Yeah. We weren't. Yeah. We were doing the dark humor and the dark humor and the dark humor and dark humor and then maybe self-medicating yeah. through the unhealthy behaviors. But we weren't feeling what we felt. We needed to feel, geez, that was brutal. Because then I had to tell his 14-year-old son that his dad's just taking his own life. Hell. Then, you know, the wife's on my shoulder. I'm, I'm giving her a hug, trying to show some compassion. Be like, you know, it's fine. It's fine. What can you say? It's fine. It's not fine. Your partner's died. But, you know, it's, you'll, you'll get through or whatever it may have been at that time. Because there's so many of them. I don't even know what my, my script was for each of yeah. them because it would have been different than telling the 14-year-old son. When you're experiencing indirect trauma like that, so I'm experiencing the trauma of cutting down somebody or attending a, a fatal crash. And then you've got the indirect trauma of going to the parents and saying, you know, with the fatal crash, one of the fatal crashes, go to the parents and say, yeah, your son. And they're like, well, what about him? We've just seen him half an hour ago. I'm like, yeah, he's, he's just had a crash and um, he's, he's not made it. He's, he's passed away. And then you can imagine the, the initial trauma that they're exuding onto you. That, the indirect trauma. Exactly. And you're thinking, like, this is brutal. Like that that person 
was a perfect example where I had to tell his family, his two his parents, that he'd passed away. Then I had to tell his wife, who they just they were just told that they were expecting a baby a month before that. And I had to say, he's no longer here. They just got married two months before. She just ran out and went into a car and just sped off. And then we're like, right now we've got another problem. So yet again, that's your professional head on because like, right now, forget about this trauma. We need, I need to focus on her safety because yeah. she just drove off, right? We get this registration. Push that down to the back, can't deal with exactly. that, move on. Exactly. And then in the police, you know, you know, for example, you know, when I cut down that person who's, who'd hung themselves, I had him over my shoulder, put him down on the floor. Then 10 minutes later, you know, well not 10 minutes, you know, half an hour later, whatever it may have been, we're eating our dinner. And then another call comes out, right? There's a shoplifting and you're like, right, we'll go again. How can I heal from- You don't the, turn to process. don't have time. And that last shift is a perfect example of, it's bad enough not being able to process trauma when you're going to other things. But when you're going from trauma to trauma, that last shift, that traumatic incident in the morning, within the space of five, six hours, a traumatic event later on in the day, two traumatic events in the one shift, and that's normal, unfortunately. And some, some days you'll get no trauma, but most of the time, yeah, you'll get a tra- traumatic event. And they'll look different. It might be, you know, you're dealing with somebody who's got a knife, who's threatening you with a knife, that's trauma. If someone's abusing you, trying to fight you, that's trauma. Or the trauma where, you know, people are dying in front of you, that's the different level of trauma, but it's whole trauma. Yeah. And then you've got the indirect trauma and you think, your days are made up, your shifts are made up of trauma, but are you healing from it? How can you? How can you? How can you when you go again? And I talk about that go again culture. And yes, they have to do it, but they don't have to not heal. Yes, people have to experience these traumas. Yeah. It's part of the job, unfortunately. But how can we help them? They need, for me, they need mandatory counselling. Whether you want to speak about it or not, it's just put them in a room and there's a, a, a counsellor there who's trained. They might ask you questions and you might not want to talk, but at least the option's there. You might, yeah, I said, you might never talk, but the option always needs to be there and it needs to be a mandatory option because yeah. in the police, see if you attended like a, a very traumatic incident. And I say very traumatic, that's the problem with the police where- They ask you, do you need help? And you they, say no. Exactly. You get an email two days after from these, this service called Trim. We know that you've experienced this. Um, do you want counseling services for this? We're here, we can come to you, whatever. That's it. And that's it. An email. An email. And you think, I'm, I'm an email? I'm that All I've done and I'm an email? And your, you know, your colleague, he'd say, did you get that email from Trim? And you're like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, I just deleted it. And you're like, I'll be deleting it too. Because, you know, it's the culture. And you get sucked into that culture. Well, if you think that's a slush eye, isn't it? You then think, that's a lot of crap. If you did answer it, how long would it take for you to actually talk to somebody? I think the point would have been quick enough. I'm not sure how many people they had working for them. But I think they would have been quick enough. I think probably within the week. Right, okay. But, you know, personally, you need it then and there. If you say you need counselling, I think you might not have another week in you because you don't know what that is bringing up, yeah. how it's making you feel, how whatever it may be. But you might think of suicidal thoughts after that. Yeah. You might think, I can't go on. Yeah. That last shift, perfect example. 
I was like, it just made me think yet again. I'm like, oh, this is, what is life? Yeah. So. The trauma things really, you know, do you just any indirect trauma? There's yeah. that many different stuff. I had such a problem with trauma at one point that I, I, it, like, I know people who's like brothers have hung themselves and someone who's been sexually abused and all these. And I thought, bloody, I've not got trauma, mate. Yeah. I'm like, that's trauma. Yeah. But like, and then when I started looking, I was like, "Fucking, I got so much trauma. It's ridiculous." From yeah. you know, a dog that I got put down when I was seventeen to yeah. what's it? And yeah. people, the relationship with trauma is is not a good one. No, is it? No, and that's the thing. Trauma means something different to every single one of us. Yeah. People might think that was trauma. Some people might not. But it's individual. So you dictate what trauma is to you. And perfect example of my uncle. He was in the police force in Belfast. So. And that was during the Troubles, so you can right. imagine Brilliant. car bombs in yeah. the different centre. And he, he experienced a lot. And it's only now, I think, 20 years after he's retired, that he's now getting counselling. And his wife is now getting counselling too because of the indirect trauma, the secondary trauma that she's experienced through the, those years with him wow. being in the police. And now she's getting her own therapy Amazing. not just couple therapy it's you know it's her therapy because yeah. secondary trauma has impacted her even though she's not which she never witnessed any of that he witnessed it all so I've we've got heard that before Rob. no exactly it's heard that before. a point more needs to be done because perfect sense that that it doesn't of course it's going to have an impact on your partner who's there by your side day and day of course it's going to but we don't think it yeah. but now when we think it we think Shit, makes yeah. sense how many people out there are struggling with something that they may not know but it's maybe secondary trauma indirect trauma whatever it may be how many of them are experiencing that but don't really understand and maybe just think they're going through a depressive episode or whatever but actually need the therapy based on their partner's trauma or friend's trauma whoever it may when be when did you know that this was your calling when did you know that you needed to spread this message <sighs> to be honest I it took me a while to open up to anybody about everything. And I, I, t- I put a LinkedIn message, I, I, I put a LinkedIn post up once, and I just said my experience and my last shift and how it made me feel. And I got like some like 400 likes and stuff and people sharing it. Mm. And it was then I was like, wow, like people are like so grateful that I've just shared this message. They're so like, oh my goodness, thank you so much. I now feel seen, I feel heard. People responding to me, partners actually responding to me, these women, uh, I think two of them responded and they said, my partner's in the fire service or my partner's in the police service and they're experiencing all this, what can I do to help them? And then even police officers themselves reaching out, like, thank you so much for sharing this, I feel the same, what can we do more? And all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, people are actually responding to it. Is this... If I need, is this because, you know, it's divine intervention, so to speak, where I'm like, yeah. I've done this thing it's and it took purpose. me, and it's my purpose now because people are showing an interest in it. And it took me so long to press that post button. I had that thing, what I wanted to say for a while, but after week after week, I thought, oh, we need to do that. But anytime I was going to, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to. I am a very private person. I don't want people to know my business anyway. It's not about you though, will it? But it wasn't it. about me. That's it. And see, when I pressed posts, that's what changed, I think, everything for me. Once I sent posts, sent post, I obviously realised something in me. What was it, Rob, that made you press that post at that time? What was it? I think it was that idea of, this isn't about me. Right. You hit the nail on the head where it was about the people so who were suffering. Yeah. And it was so much bigger than me. And, you know, 
I see so many times another police officer's taking his own life. Uh, somebody else in the public taking their own life. Male mental health. Yeah. We, we know the stats around that. There's so much out there that is wrong with society that we need to do more. And I thought, I'm not a decision maker. I'm not a policy maker. But what can I do? I've got a voice. We all have a voice. And I have an experience that goes with it. I'm a man, which helps in terms of the male mental health. And I was in a profession where you probably wouldn't think, oh, I should suffer from your mental health. Look at the police. You know, the police do get a bad rap. And a lot of them probably deserve their bad rap. But there's also a human side to the police. And I thought, I was that human side to the police where I was suffering. I was in that profession where people were saying, oh, you know, lads, that's lads, the macho culture. Yeah, you can deal with anything. Deal with anything. But all of a sudden, well, I couldn't. And to get that out there for people to then think, oh, jeez, a police officer who's that macho culture. Yeah, and it's just taking arms and legs from there. And people want to listen. People want to learn. When did Senex approach you? I connected with people on LinkedIn and he'd seen my stuff and he contacted me about, I think it suited his the theme, it was down in Bristol, and it suited his theme that he was going with and it was called like Bags and Baggages, so it's about what we carry with us in our life. And this idea of happiness and trauma, he's like, he saw me posting about stuff like that and he's like, wait a minute, this is actually a good fit, this is perfect. And I did a talk in Orlando. I, I went to Orlando to talk at this conference. And that was my first ever talk. So I started sharing on LinkedIn saying like, I'm not giving talks and things like that. And then all of a sudden, TEDx came from it. And I was just like, wow, like it's a full circle moment. I didn't, I couldn't even open, open up. And now I'm giving a TEDx talk about my experiences. Yeah. And it was emotional. I remember my, my, my family dog died by three days before I did the TEDx talk and I was, I was so, so un, like depressed about it because I, I just loved him and he was he was a, just a lovable rogue, this wee doggy. And I was that close to cancelling the TEDx talk because I, I couldn't speak. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute, I'm speaking about trauma. Although I wasn't speaking about him, I was like, I'm speaking about trauma, but I'm not healed from something that I'm, I'm experiencing now. You're saying about the trauma about putting yeah, your dog yeah. down 17. Yeah. Dogs have that impact on you. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I took days to get over that. And I was like, no, this TEDx talk needs to happen. Not just out of a selfish point of view. It was it was a platform and it was the biggest platform that I'd done at that point where other people can hear my story. And that's what it was. It was, again, it was bigger than me. Yes, of course, in terms of a professional yeah. sense, I wanted to do a TEDx talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at that point, I thought, no, no, this story needs to be out and this is a perfect place to do it. So I just thought, right, Rob going with it and do it but it was hard it was hard because I was going through that trauma and yeah. at the end of it I just felt all this emotion I was like oh now I can properly grieve yeah. and but it was it was difficult how did you do on stage what what did you say how did you go on stage yeah how did you do it? It, it was it was brilliant was it the first time you stood up and did a how many people were there it was I think there was about 80 people and I said I did a talk in Orlando and I did another few talks before then but this was the one where I was like, right, this is the biggest audience at that point. And there was pressure because it's like, right, get recorded TEDx. You've got a limited 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, and all. I was yeah, like, jeez. Yeah. But I just thought, Rob, just be, just yeah. do what you want. And I went up there and you know, the feedback that I get, people are like, jeez, you're so calm up there. And I just thought, I just forgot about the time. I just went, 
Tell your story the way you tell your story. On the on stage, did you think I'm? Did you feel like you were home? I did. Did you feel that 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 is what you were born to do, mate? Yeah, because you know these pauses. You know, some people when they're doing talks, they're like, I need to get over and done with it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I was just there, and I just paused sometimes, you know, for dramatic effect. But also, I was just looked around too, and I just took it all in. Yeah. And I was just like, "This you is my purpose. This, you found your calling. This is my calling. Yeah. I loved it. I don't get nervous. Look, I think before an hour before, like say, I get to an event space, I, that's when I get nervous. But is it nervous or is it excitement? It's probably a bit of both. Yeah. It's nervously excited because I'm nervous because I want to get do it well. Yeah. But I'm excited because I'm like. I love being there. I love being on stage. I love the energy. I love just everyone, all eyes on me and listening to the story. I love it. And I've never had any training, never, never had anything. And I just, but the feedback I get, they're like, oh, geez, you're just a natural there. And that is literally it. It's a natural calling. Amazing, mate. And Beautiful. I just, love, I, I love it. And I get so much joy from it. Never mind when people come up to me after and just say, you've got me thinking about my own life and the TEDx talk a police officer came up to me and he says I'm actually in the police in London and he says everything that you're telling me he says I witness it too I experience all these things it's affecting me and he says I just don't think what else could I do he says what else could I do in my life though that's what I think and I said but I'm, I'm the example there's other things you can do in your life you can find a purpose you can find something you love and he's like, oh, thank you so much. Like, I've just, I've learned so much from it and now I'm going to take some decisions in my life. And I think that had to happen to yeah. the biggest stage at, at that point. Just the flat police one officer. person. Exactly. And it had to be a police officer. It had to be. And I was just like, wow. And now, two weeks ago, I gave a talk to over 100 police officers across the whole UK. That's amazing, bro. And I just think, wow, this is a full circle. And But before, I didn't even want to do anything with the police. I had a lot of anger with the police, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. A lot of resentment. And I just thought I didn't want to be part of their culture again, even yeah. though it wasn't, but even, I didn't want to even be there. But yet again, that purpose element came up and I was like, Rob. Yeah. You were put in the place to experience exactly what it's like for them to go back to it to say, look. Exactly. To help the Imagine people it, who are it doing it. Mad the universe. Yeah. Uh, how it works. It is. And I just, you know, there's so many things in my life that's happened like that. And I just think, yeah. hey, but it's went full circle and it's had to happen for a reason I had as I said I had that resentment to the police mm. and now I'm giving talks to the police and I'm feeling like they need this, you mate don't they and that's it it's the officers who need me the police force I can criticise the police force until the cows come home there's so much I think wrong with the police force mm. in general throughout the UK but it's not about them it's about the people who the good people yeah. who are giving their day in day out their best for a job to try to protect the public. Now, not every single person's got those good intentions, I know, but there is a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. And they need me. And not just them, but just people in public, whether it's men or just anybody suffering with mental health difficulties, but especially men, seeing another man up there talking and being like, it's okay. It's okay to talk. We need to talk. And again, I think for men especially, seeing other people do it, it's so like transformational isn't it especially seeing a man doing yeah. it and, beautiful mate. and uh, yeah. when did you set up your business then when did you find yeah we, we were in we were living in Flensi me and my partner and I was in a environment where I was just all of a sudden all this creativity came to me because it was in a, a happy place yeah and I was always a creative person growing up but the police yet again that's what it took my creativity away 
because I was too busy thinking of trauma yeah. rather than new ideas. But we were living in Valencia. I was so happy in terms of my environment. And all these ideas just come into my head. I was like, what's this? Like, my creativity's back. This is brilliant. And I always knew I wanted to do something in the industry in terms of mental health and happiness. And I thought, what well, about, like, we do something about a magazine? Now, my mom used to be in the magazine industry back when she used to work back in the, when I was young. And I was like, I loved being part of that when I, you know, she'd take me to work and show me how things done, how things were done. I loved, I loved the designing of the magazine. I loved the sales part of it. I loved everything. I was like, what about we do a magazine then? And people share their stories. What's the magazine called? So it's called Rise of Happiness. Yep. So the business is called Rise of Happiness and the magazine's called Rise of Happiness. And we put it free initially. Just get, you know, get the word out there. Right? Everyone can get a copy. And people share their stories in their words. So, so many magazines out there, you're reading an interview yeah. or, you know, like newspapers. They paraphrase, they might take a quote from your interview or whatever. And sometimes, I've seen it with myself, you can't change the meaning of it fully. And you're like, mm, I didn't really want it to be like yeah, that. Yeah. And I was like, no, this is important. If people are going to share their stories, it needs to be in their words. Because also people are going to get more from that. Me reading that and seeing someone being so vulnerable, I'm like, I'd be like, oh, geez, like, I can feel that. I can feel that raw emotion. So that was the first one. I was like, let people share their stories in their words. And then let's also have like expert tips and advice about how people can actually look after their mental health, their well-being, their happiness. Just ch changing this narrative of what happiness actually is and what we're chasing in life. Because I think we follow society's expectations of what happiness and, yeah. Yeah. and um, uh, success. But let's change it. And this the magazine's all about change our perception with people's stories about how they cope with their struggles but also the tips and stuff whether it's tips about what you can do in your life with nutrition sleep whatever Just it may be tools. exactly and so they've got people the readers have got two takeaways they've got the takeaways of vulnerable stories which have an impact on themselves yeah. you know your podcast perfect example yeah. people telling stories matter in this yeah. world but also then the takeaways of right an expert's now telling me this 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 works let me try some of these on. So yeah, the magazine's been going since August 2022. So it's been a year now, just over a year. And it's now going into W. H. Smith from December. So we're Crazy, going to be on, on the stall. So yeah, excited, excitedly nervous. Yeah, I can't hope, but I am excited. Like we know that it's, it's a great product because we're doing it for the right reason. Yeah. And you know, people sharing their stories, it's, people get something from it and we've had so much feedback people are saying this is amazing like I've actually learned so much and also the contributors themselves see when they've written their stories they've came to us and says this has been a really cathartic experience yeah, like journaling down, exactly getting it out of your exactly own and it's nice because we have a mix we have normal members of the public yeah. but we also have people in the public eye so like so Sky Sports presenter Simon Thomas and football Clark Carlisle he did an article in this latest issue a wrestler did a, a, a previous wrestler for the WWE's did done an article for us. So it's that nice balance of everyday people stories yeah. and With people that you might know exactly yeah. because yet again it highlights this idea of we're all the same. Yeah. No matter if you've got all the money in the world, all the fame in the world, none at all, whatever we all experience mental health, happiness, well-being, whatever it may be in that bracket, yeah. we all experience it. You're you're not safe because 
you're in the public eye. And yet again, that idea of we're all got mental health. So let's talk about it. Who do you see now you look in the mirror? I see somebody who is firstly happy. I mean, that's the main thing. I see someone who is, yet again, positive. He's got his creativity. He's got his spark back, so to speak. And he's, he's Rob. He's, he's the Rob that I knew and I wanted to be again. Now, I, I do see under the eyes, sometimes the trauma still there. I wear it now, it's like a different hat. I'm like, it's just another hat that I wear that it'll always be part of my life. As I said, since we diagnosed with PTSD, it'll always be a part of me. But it's part of me that I'll never let control me. Yeah. It's gonna be, I'll live with it. It's just a part of you. Exactly, exactly. And that's the perfect way of putting it. It's just a part. And the rest of me is yeah, happy, positive, and just love life. And for where I was of wanting my life to end, to now loving life and seeing the potential of life. Mm. It's a it's a beautiful full circle moment. Thank you, Rob. Thank how can you. people get in touch with you? How can they get in touch with you? They want you to do a talk? How can people find uh, the magazine? So if you go onto the website, which is www.riseofhappiness.com, check out the magazine. You can get your free copy at the minute, right now before the December issue, so you can download your free copy. And for myself, if you go on Instagram, my Instagram is talking with Rob. And my website's also talkingwithrob.com and you can get in touch by getting me into your business, talk about happier uh, staff, because happy staff are 13% more productive. So there Correct. you go, that's a, that's a good one. Um, <laughs> and yeah, just this idea of happy, happier staff and how they can manage stress and yeah. the mental health. And you can get in touch yeah, with LinkedIn, just type in Rob Hosking, but the, the Instagram and the website's probably the best ones. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, mate. Thank Thank you for everybody for listening. Goodbye.